Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to continue in the book of Revelation this morning. We are going to start reading in chapter 9 of Revelation, but not immediately. First, to absolutely nobody's surprise, a few words of introduction. Eventually, we'll get to Revelation chapter 9. There are things in this world that we just don't know, that we just don't understand, that we just don't comprehend because we have nothing to really relate it to. It's not anything that we can relate to in our experience. For instance, I like watching nature shows where they send cameras into the depths of the ocean And almost invariably, they find some new fish that nobody's ever seen before. 
And that fascinates me because I think, okay, human beings have never seen this. They've never interacted with it. They don't know what it is. They don't even have a name for it yet. But God always knew it was there. God made it. God put it down there. And he was the only one who got to enjoy it until men finally got to see it. What we do as human beings when we come across things that we are unfamiliar with, that we have never encountered before, we try to relate it to something that is comfortable for us. We relate it to something that we do know. Like the first time that somebody saw a big fish with what looked like whiskers, they said, well, cats have whiskers, that's a catfish. They related it to something they already knew. You're going to see John do that a lot in this chapter. He's going to use the word like more in this chapter than in any other chapter in the book of Revelation. He's going to say, I saw like this. And what he's doing is relating these unknown elements to things that he does know to things that we can relate to, so that we can kind of understand what it is that John was seeing. But the reality is, the same way that there are creatures at the bottom of the ocean that we've never seen, we don't know, and then suddenly one day they turn up, there are things in the heavens that we've just never seen, that we don't know, that we cannot relate to, because it doesn't relate to anything in our experience or in our history. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, we saw the four living creatures that stand before the throne of God, and they were four-headed. Well, okay, we have nothing to relate that to. We just have to take John's word that that's, in fact, what he saw. The first concept that we've got to get a hold of today is the idea of a bottomless pit. Okay, we have nothing on the planet we can relate that to. I mean, I was always told if you dig far enough, you come up in China. And as a kid, I tried a couple of times. I was moving to China. I was out there with the shovel, heading for China. Because we can't conceive of something that doesn't have an end. The Bible talks about things like everlasting life. We don't know that. We haven't experienced that. We believe it. We read it. But we can't really conceive of it. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who needs a nap every once in a while. So it's hard for me to imagine just being everlasting, ever living. We read that in that everlasting life, there's going to be no more death, no more pain, well, we don't know what that's like because we are living in a world that is absolutely enveloped by death, constant death. Death is all around us. Even the culture that we live in is in so many ways a culture of death because it's such a reality for us. So we can't think of everlasting life and relate it to anything that we've ever experienced. Same thing with the concept of bottomless we think that there has to be a bottom somewhere. And yet the Greek term that John is about to use, abusos, actually means depthless. It has no depth. You can't measure the depth. It just keeps going. And so it is 
a bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is spoken of not only in the book of Revelation, but Paul mentions it, and perhaps the best way to get a hold of it is that Jesus himself interacted with it. So let's start this morning by turning to Luke chapter 8, because there are several really important concepts that we can learn from Luke chapter 8. This is the story of Jesus dealing with the demoniac by the Gadarenes. Regardless of what else you get out of it, you cannot ignore the absolute sovereignty of Jesus in this story. Because even the demons, who are legion, recognize that he is in control of them. That he is the one making decisions about them. I'm going to start reading in Luke 8, verse 26. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when he had come out onto the land, stepping out of the boat, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothes for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus... He cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Okay, so what would that torment look like? Because here are these demons who are just living it up on planet Earth. When Jesus walks into their sphere of being, And they immediately recognize him. They know who he is. They know that he has absolute authority and power over him. And so they worship before him and cry out, what have you got to do with us? Can't you just leave us alone and don't torment us? In a moment, we're going to find out what that torment would look like. Verse 29 says, For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon out into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now he's speaking right past the man to the demon that is inhabiting him. What is your name? The demon answers, Legion. For many demons had entered into him. A Roman legion is a few thousand people. This man is full of devils. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That word abyss is the word abusos. You can see how it migrated into the English language. Depthless. Their question for him is, what have you to do with us? Don't torment us. And don't command us to go into the abyss. Whatever the abyss is, whatever the bottomless pit is, they don't want to go there. Notice that they recognize that if they are commanded into the abyss, it is Jesus who is going to command them there. Jesus has absolute authority over this legion of demons, 
and they recognized his authority. And they were entreating him, begging him not to command them to depart into the abyss. By the way, if he commanded them to go into the abyss, would they have any choice? Would they have any option there? Would they say, no, I prefer not to? That sounds like a bad time. No. No, they were entreating him not to send them into this bottomless pit. Now, the end of the story is there were a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons begged him to permit them to enter into the swine, and he gave them permission, which means that demons cannot even inhabit swine, pigs, without the say-so of Jesus Christ. So who's in charge? Clearly Christ. Whether we're talking about people on planet Earth, whether we're talking about the demonic horde, whether we're talking about the angels in heaven who bow down and worship him, he has absolute authority over absolutely everybody. And they recognize that. And the demons, says verse 33, came out from the man and they entered into the pigs. And the herd of pigs rushed down the steep bank of the lake and they drowned themselves. And when the herdsmen saw what happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were so happy they begged him to stay there even longer because clearly he, no, no. They became frightened, and those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well, and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to go away, to depart from them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into the boat, and he went back. So when they have this demoniac, who can't be chained and is doing all this damage, they're kind of fine with that. But when Jesus shows up, who has the authority over the demons and drives the demon out, they don't want any part of that. Go away from us. Okay, well, the concept that I am driving at here is the idea of this bottomless pit. Now, there is this ancient Jewish tradition that you find in the apocryphal writing, and I am not advocating for the canonicity of the apocryphal writing here. I'm just going to plant an idea in your head, because in a moment we're going to read both Peter and Jude confirming this idea, this tradition. That ancient Jewish tradition is that the reason for the flood is something that we read in the book of Genesis, that there were demons who found the daughters of men to be attractive. They cohabitated with those women. Now, I know that's very controversial, and a lot of people argue about whether that was actually demons cohabiting with actual human women, but that's what the language seems to be saying. They produced a race of crossbreeds. Not human, not demonic, 
And so the apocryphal writing of Enoch, even the apocryphal writing in the book of Jubilees, these are not canonical books of the Bible. However, in the Catholic Bible and in some other Bibles, they do include the Apocrypha. They bind the Apocrypha in it because the Apocrypha informs us so much about Jewish history and tradition. So in the Apocryphal writing, we are told that God was so upset by this crossbreed of preachers living on planet Earth He was so angry at the demons who did that that he cast them into the bottomless pit. That's the only reason I'm bringing this up. He cast them into the bottomless pit and then chained them up there so that they could not do any more of that activity among human beings. And because they had created this hybrid creature here on earth, that that was the reason for the flood, says the tradition. That Noah's flood was for the purpose of wiping out those people, which is why there was only Noah and eight people total on the boat who actually survived. God started over. He had done away with that race. Okay, now, that's all apocryphal stuff. Believe it, don't believe it. You just need to know it's the Jewish tradition because Second Peter, turn to Second Peter 2 for a moment. Peter is going to confirm that there are, in fact, demonic forces that are being held in pits in chains of darkness. And of course, that begs the question, how did they get there? We're not told. We're just told that they are there. God has put them there. We don't know what they did that was so bad that God would put them there. The Jewish tradition gives us some hint of why they're there. What we know for sure is Peter confirms they're there. When we get to Revelation 9, they get released. I just want you to get some sense of how bad it's going to get in Revelation 9 when John starts yanking out language that we just don't even know how to relate to. There's nothing in our experience that is like this, but we have to have some sense of biblical demonology in order to understand the things that we're about to read. That's right, Sunday morning at GCA, biblical demonology. <laughs> Whee! You happy you're here so far? Okay. Second Peter, chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 4. You do know, by the way, I have to start here. You do know that demons are fallen angels, right? Later in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that when Satan fell from heaven, that great dragon that with his tail, he took a third of the angels down with him. When you hear the word demon, diamond in the Greek, when you hear that, it just means a fallen angel. So Peter says, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, okay, so he's talking about fallen angels who we just simply know as demons, And God did not spare them. He judged them. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness held for judgment. Okay, so God on his own eternal calendar has a moment in time when he's going to dole out the judgment, the final judgment. At the end of the book of Revelation, 
we read that there is a place called the Lake of Fire. And the description of it is that it was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the exact language. So Satan and his demons are going to be judged and end up in the lake of fire, but not yet. So where is God holding them till, until that time of judgment comes about? Well, they're being held in pits of darkness until there is this time of judgment. Verse 5, and he did not spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly, in other words, Peter is saying that when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone coming down from heaven and destroying them completely, that was a precursor, a foreshadow of what God has planned for the entire world of the ungodly. We're going to start seeing that in chapter 9 of Revelation. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then if all of that is true, says Peter, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion and despise authority. Peter's whole point in that is to say God knows how to divide between those that are his and those that are coming into judgment. And he has kept the demons who he is going to judge in pits of darkness. Jude then is going to continue that description so that we get a greater sense of the binding that God has put on these demons. Jude doesn't have any chapters. It's only one chapter long. But Jude verses 6 and 7 says, Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about fallen angels. Same thing Peter talked about. Jude says, these angels who did not keep their first estate, but they abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So Jude is saying the same thing that Peter has told us, the same thing that the ancient Jewish tradition has told us, the same thing that we're about to see in the book of Revelation, that there are these demons who have been held since who knows how long, and they have been held in chains of darkness, in the bottomless pit, and you don't want them getting out. If God himself thinks they belong in a bottomless pit, you don't want them for neighbors. That's right. You don't want them around you. And yet, things get so bad 
in Revelation 9 that God starts releasing them. Continuing in Jude. Jude does the same thing that Peter did and compares the righteous judgment of God to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since in the same way as these angels, this is so very interesting, because here Jude is reaching back to that Jewish tradition that there were demons who cohabitated with women, and so God put them in chains of darkness to hold them until the judgment. Jude seems to be referring to that when he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, okay, we know why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was because of their sexual proclivities. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as those fallen angels indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh, flesh that was not like their own flesh. They went after human female flesh. And they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, Sodom and Gomorrah, all kinds of sexual perversion going on. God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Peter says that is a foretaste of what God is going to do to all the ungodly in this world. Jude picks it up and says... And in fact, it's the same as those angels who couldn't control their sexual urges and went after strange flesh who were at this very time in restraints under darkness until the day of judgment. Have I lost anybody yet? I know this is heavy stuff, but you need to know all of this or you're not going to be able to make sense out of Revelation 9 which is where we find they are. See, my introduction did not take 45 minutes. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. Let's turn to Revelation 9. Did someone mock me with a sigh of relief? Oh. Verse 1 of Revelation 9. In chapter 8, we saw the first four angels who had trumpets blow their trumpets Things kept going from bad to worse. God was wiping out the food supply. He was wiping out the water supply for a whole third of the planet. That's a whole lot of people. And then finally, wormwood that made the water poison. The fourth angel sounds. A third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars are smitten. And a third of them are darkened so that they can't tell day from night. Verse 13 said, I, John, looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. So as bad as it was at the end of chapter 8, an angel tells us it's about to get worse. And it does. By the way, you will notice that the angel accurately said, Woe, woe, woe. In a moment, perhaps not today, we're going to see that those woes are actually enumerated. Two of the woes have passed. Another one is yet coming. So that's math. I'll just point that out. But the three woes are the three last trumpets that are about to blow. Verse 1 of chapter 9. 
the fifth angel sounded. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Okay, there's several words there that we have to talk about. The star is not a heavenly body like the stars that we're thinking of because he's referred to with a male pronoun, he. And so it's obviously a being. The most common explanation, if you read commentators, is that this is a reference to Satan because it says that he had fallen to the earth. And there is ample evidence that this could be Satan, and I will show you the evidence, because it's not an angel who would come and release demons, but it is Satan who is allowed to release these demons. But what I want you to see, and part of the reason that we read the story from Luke, is that God is in absolute control in sovereign control over everything that's happening throughout the book of Revelation, and yet he allows whoever it is that is unleashing demons from the bottomless pit, the key is given to him. Now, this is the same Jesus who said things like chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. He said, I have the key to death and to hell. So did he have a physical key, or was he simply saying, I have the authority to open and close. He's the one who said, if I open, no man can close it. If I close, who can open it? So this language of key may simply be the ability, the permission, the power to actually open it. Whichever way you want to think of the key, whether it's an actual physical key that's given to him to go open the pit, or whether John just sees that key emblematically as the ability or the power to open the pit, it doesn't matter because once the pit is open, it's the bottomless pit, and we know who's in there. We know that there are no good people, no righteous people, no elect angels coming up out of the pit. And yet chapter 9 starts with a fifth angel sounding his trumpet, and a star from heaven which had fallen to earth had the key to the bottomless pit that was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit. Okay, so I said that I would show you the evidence that this might be Satan. Uh, I'm going to read from Luke 10 for just a moment. This is Jesus talking. Well, here, Luke 10, starting at verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, by your authority, by your power, even the demons who we never had any control over, now they are subject to us because of your authority, because of your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. I find this fascinating. They're all excited about the fact that, hey, even the demons do what we say. We can drive out demons by your name, by your authority. Do you realize the kind of a power that we have? And Jesus says, but don't rejoice in that. 
If you want something to rejoice in, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. That's what you really need to rejoice about. So I read that to say, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. The reference here in the book of Revelation was, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And so there is that parallel. We're not going to take the time this morning to go read Isaiah 14. but Yes, we are. Let's do it. Let's do it real quick. I had too many people look at me disappointed at that moment. Keep your finger there in Revelation. Old Testament, book of Isaiah. You're looking for Isaiah 14. When we went verse by verse through the book of Isaiah, I pointed out to you that oftentimes the prophets would speak to kings, to people, to human beings, and then speak right past them, right through them to the devil that drove them. Well, that's what's happening here. And in the midst of this prophecy against the king of Babylon, starting in verse 12, suddenly the language changes from just, you're a man, you're going to go to the grave, you're going to decay, you're going to be eaten by worms. The language in verse 12 changes, and Isaiah says, How are you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? That's where we get the name Lucifer. Some of your translations will say Lucifer, which just means carrier of light. And so it is translated son of the dawn, star of the morning. So it is a direct reference to Lucifer, who is the driving force behind the king of Babylon. And the reference to him is, how is it that you have fallen from heaven? You were once the son of the morning. You were once among the sons of God before the throne of God. And now you've been cast out of heaven and you have fallen to the earth. Jesus says, I saw that. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. That's what we read in Revelation. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. By the way, there's so much stuff here. I have to jump forward for a moment to Revelation 20. For any of you who know Revelation 20, you know that that's the chapter that talks about the thousand years. During that thousand years, Satan is bound and put into the abyss. Okay, the bottomless pit, same thing we're talking about here. And the reason that's given for why he's put in the abyss for a thousand years is so that he does not deceive the nations. Okay, well, that's described as one of his characteristics here. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have deceived, you who have weakened the nations. Verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. There's that reference to stars again as being celestial beings. I will raise up my throne above the stars of heaven and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
Okay, so Satan got lifted up in pride. He decided that he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be above all the angels and even was going to form his throne above God. For that reason, God, proving that he is the only God, cast him down into the earth. Okay, with all that background, can you see why in chapter 9, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, when the fifth angel sounds... I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth and the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. Can you see why commentators would make those connections and say, well, yes, the one who is notably fallen to earth in Isaiah and in the book of Luke, the one who is notably fallen from heaven to deceive the nations is Satan himself. And it would only make sense if it is Satan who is releasing the demons onto the planet. What we don't know in the context of Revelation itself and what John saw is whether John himself saw Lucifer falling. Because he just said it was a star fallen down to earth and the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. Turn forward for just a moment to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, I'm just going to look at verses 3 and 4. In a few weeks, we'll actually get here and talk about it at greater length. But it says, Another sign appeared in the heavens, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk about all that. On his head, there were seven crowns, seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So again, here is a reference to Satan falling, taking a third of heaven down with him. These are the fallen angels that did not keep their first estate that Peter and Jude talked about. Realistically, it could be any of them but ultimately the source of their falling is still Satan. And then as I mentioned in Revelation 20, we're going to see again that Satan himself ends up in the bottomless pit at long last, verse 2. He, since he has this key, he opened the bottomless pit and the smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Okay, we have something we can relate that to. Over the course of time, there have been volcanoes that have erupted that threw so much ash and smoke into the air that it hid the sun and hid the stars. And even planes couldn't fly through that area because it was just too dark and too hard to navigate. So at least we have some image in our head of what this is going to be like. This angel, this star that has fallen to the earth, apparently from heaven, is going to open the bottomless pit. And the first thing that happens is this dark smoke ascends up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air are all darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of that smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, in a mostly agricultural culture, 
one of the worst things that could happen to you and to your crops, something that could cause famine and unending difficulty for nations, was if there was a plague of locusts. In the book of Exodus, as God is pouring out plagues, God uses insects, frogs, locusts, lice. And so the first thing that John sees is locusts coming up from the smoke out of the bottomless pit. That is a continuation of what we saw in chapter 8, where the crops are being destroyed, the food supply is being destroyed. And so naturally, John would look at it and say, okay, locusts, that makes sense with everything I've just read, except it gets worse. Because they're told, unlike their nature, which is to destroy crops, they're told not to destroy any of the trees or any of the grass. They have one purpose and one purpose only, which is to hurt people. And God let them loose as a sign of judgment on the godless who were left on the planet. Smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. I used to live in California. Has anybody here ever dealt with scorpions? Zero fun, no fun. And yet, there are some people who think they're a delicacy. Huh. Scorpions are no fun because they move quickly and they sting with their tail. They have that little wraparound tail with a stinger in it. And oh, it's a painful sting. Okay, so these locusts have that kind of stinger on the back of them. We don't have anything to relate that to. We've never seen locusts that have stingers in their tails like scorpions. And so here John is describing it with the only language he knows how to describe it. They're like locusts, but they're also like scorpions. And they have these stingers in their tails. Why do they have these stingers in their tails? Well, power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power, and they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing nor any tree. Well, that's what locusts do. So against that natural tendency of locusts, they are told to only hurt the men who had not received the seal of God in their foreheads. Who are the men who received the seal of God in their foreheads. That's the 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who had the seal of God put in their forehead. Those are the only people. 144,000. Remember, there's only two-thirds of the population of Earth still on Earth, but that's still several million people. And everybody is subject to the pain and the stinging of these scorpions except the 144,000 that God chose out. You want to talk about election for a moment? You want to talk about God's power to choose for a moment? You want to talk about God's sovereignty over everything that happens in life? These scorpions are so bad that once they start stinging, the people of earth try to die. They try to commit suicide. 
because they can't take the scorpion stings anymore and God doesn't allow them to die their sovereignty in his sovereign judgment and control he is in charge of everything that's happening here and it's bad and it's dark I'm only stressing this to say you don't want to be here because the only people who escape it are the 144,000, the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. You'll notice there's no reference here to anybody else. Out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. Power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree but only hurt the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads and they were not permitted to kill anyone. <sighs> okay, so book of Job. Satan is with God. They're having a conversation and God brings up Job. I've always thought that Job at that moment would be like, hey, 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 <laughs> you don't have to bring me up in this conversation. Anyway. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, let me touch his body. He'll curse you to your face. God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. Because God is always in control of when people die, how people die. He's, what's that word? Sovereign. He's in charge of all of it. And here's another example of it. These are demonic insects who are so bad they've been kept in the bottomless pit waiting for the day of judgment when they're being released on people and God's still in control and says, you can sting them, you can hurt them, you can't kill them. Not a single one of you can kill anybody. But they are permitted to torment them for five months. Five months of constant stinging. Has anybody lived here in Tennessee long enough that you remember the cicadas? I remember one particular cicada infestation where you just wouldn't walk outdoors because they were just all over you. They were just everywhere. Okay, now imagine they're stinging you. And they know that their goal is nothing but hurting you. They were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like, okay, here's John again using that terminology. It's, it's like, it's, it's the Greek word hos, and it means in this same manner. It's a comparative adverb. It's comparing one thing to another thing, something unfamiliar to something more familiar so that you can get some sense of what it's like. The torment for five months was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Five months of nonstop, constant stinging by these scorpion tails. Verse 6, it's no wonder that it says, And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die and death will flee away from them. You can't even kill yourself because God is in the enterprise of judging 
the godless people of the earth. Now you can see why the eagle flying in the sky said, whoa, 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 it's about to get worse. This is incredibly painful, so painful that people want to die from it, and God, who is sovereign, doesn't allow them to die. Because, as Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he's the one who has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And when it's your time to die, you can't stop yourself from dying. When it's not your time to die, you don't get to die, even under judgment. In those days, men will seek death, and they will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees away from them. Now John is going to describe these demon locusts. I have seen over the years artist renderings of what these demon locusts would look like. And you can understand from the language we're about to read, because we have never seen these, because we have no experience with this, because we have nothing in our memory bank that is this, so you can see why human beings just naturally try to relate it to something that they know. For instance, anybody who has ever read Great Late Planet Earth know that, uh, oh, who was the author? Hal Lindsey said that these are helicopters because he didn't know what else to relate them to because they have faces of men. So he said, oh, well, helicopters that have that glass front. John doesn't know what to call helicopters, so he called them locusts because that's the only thing he knew. And then if you look through the glass front and you saw human faces in there, that's what he's describing. But what John is describing is like these other creatures because these are demons out of the pit and it's perfectly okay to say that demons that have been in the pit since time immemorial of course we wouldn't know what they look like of course we'd have a hard time describing them because they're not helicopters there's not anything that human beings know about they are a completely demonic hybrid creature that is designed for the purpose of hurting men, and that's why they've been held in the bottomless pit until the time of judgment when God allows them to be released to pour out the judgment. In other words, they're exactly what John says they are. They're demons from the bottomless pit. Make sense? Yep. You don't have to make them helicopters. And by the way, they don't have to be big like helicopters. I've seen several artist renderings where there are these big giant, they, they can be little bugs. Because like I said, the cicadas are just little bugs and they're, they're a real bother. Imagine if they were also stinging you continually and you couldn't escape them. Think about when the lice were in Egypt. The lice got into everything. When the frogs, even more scary, the frogs, it says, got into the kneading troughs and into the bowls. You couldn't even make food without there being frogs in it. Okay, uh, yuck. And the lice would get in everything and bite people and make them uncomfortable. So the same way that insects get in everything, these demon insects are going to be everywhere all the time, stinging people. I just can't fathom it. And yet... This is part of the judgment of God on the ungodly who are still living on the planet. Okay, let's read verse 7. 
The NASB says, and the appearance. It's the word, the likeness. In other words, he is one more time saying, they're like this. They're not exactly like this. When he says there's something like gold crowns on their head, all it has to be is a little bit of yellow, a little bit of gold on the top of their head. And John would say, well, it's like a gold crown on their head. And yet I've seen artist renderings of bugs with gold crowns. And I think they're taking John's words way too literally because, oh, let's talk about literal reading of the book of Revelation for just a moment. I'm just going to throw this in for free, hermeneutical study 101. We read the book of Revelation at face value, literally paying attention to what is on the page. But then John gives us hints when those things that he's writing are not exactly what he's describing, because he says they are like this or that. Therefore, when we see symbols in the book of Revelation, we know they're symbols. How do we know they're symbols? John's telling us. How do we know when something is not exactly what he's describing, but like something else? Because he's telling us. But how are we going to go about interpreting those things? You can only interpret them if you first read what John literally wrote. So we read it literally, and then we come to an understanding of what he's getting at. He is not describing helicopters. He's describing stinging insects, but now he's going to say that there are all these characteristics that are unique to these insects. They're unlike anything that we know here on planet Earth, and he's going to describe them using language that he's familiar with so that we can get some sense of what they are. Does that hermeneutical approach make sense? Yeah, sure. I have to point that out because every time I say that I read the Bible literally, somebody on the internet will write to me and say, well, then Jesus is a literal door with a piece of wood and hinges because he said I'm the door. And they say it with that tone of voice, and I can read it right through their notes to me. And so I, I constantly feel like I have to explain what it is to literally read the Bible. It means pay attention to the words that are on the page and they will tell you whether or not they have to be understood or interpreted. So back away from the keyboard. <laughs> and their likeness of these locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Okay, what are horses prepared for battle? What do you, there's a horse. Let's start with a horse. It's just a horse, just a plain horse, not dressed up at all. He's not in a parade, he's just a horse. Okay, if you're going to be taking him into battle, what's the first thing you do for that horse? Armor. You put armor on him. So what is John saying? That these locusts have armor on them. Now, does that mean they physically have some metal on them? No, it means they have a tough shell on them. Can you think of any insects that have a tough shell on them? Yeah, like roaches. These have a tough shell. And so John says, it's like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, are the next three words. So John is not saying they're literally wearing crowns, which would be very weird. By the way, it's not the word diadem, which is the word that we typically think of with a gold crown. If someone is a ruler, someone's a king, they're wearing a diadem. Jesus is said to be wearing a diadem on his head. But this kind of crown is like a victor's laurel wreath. Anything that you would wear on your head, 
crowns your head, which is why this part of your head is called the crown. And so all John is pointing out is that there is something of a gold color on the front of their heads, on the top of their heads. So it is like, as it were, crowns of gold. Their faces were like the face of men. Turn, if you would, quickly to Joel chapter 2. Oh, let's all go there. Go to Joel chapter 2 because, again, John is not saying anything that is unknown to the rest of Scripture. The very short book of Joel in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, I'm mostly interested in verse 4, but we're going to read more of it because other portions of Joel 2 are going to show up in this chapter, even if we don't get to it this morning. Joel 2, I'm just going to start reading at verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it's near. So Joel is talking about the very same time period that's being described in the book of Revelation. This is the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment. Verse 2, he describes it. A day of darkness and of gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, that's what we just read. Once he snuffs out a third of the stars of heaven, it gets dark, and then you open the bottomless pit, and smoke arises, and it gets dark, and there's thick darkness. As the dawn spreads over the mountains, he's comparing it that the darkness is going to spread over the mountains. So there is a great and a mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. The land ahead of them is like the Garden of Eden, but it's desolate wilderness behind them. So this army of people is just mowing down the land, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. And the noise is like chariots when they leap from the tops of mountains. In other words, the chariots just go so fast, they just move mountain to mountain, mowing down property, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming all the stubble, like a mighty people arrayed and arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. And they each march in line. And they do not deviate from their paths. And they do not crowd each other. And they march everyone in his path when they burst through the defenses. They do not break ranks. They rush into the city, and they run on the wall, and they climb on the houses, and they enter through the windows like a thief. And before them the earth quakes, and the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Okay, so, describing the horses for this battle, Joel takes the time to say that they are arrayed in appearance like horses. He doesn't say they are horses. He says they're arrayed like horses, like war horses. In other words, they are ready for battle. They have their armor on. Very similar to what's being described here in Revelation 9, verse 7. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. 
Okay, well, Joel said that that army was like horses prepared for battle. John is just picking up the same concept, the same language. And they had on their heads, as it were, crowns of gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Let's work backwards through that. What are the teeth of lions? Sharp. That's really all he's getting at. They bite, they sting, and they have sharp teeth, like lions. Because living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, the animal with the sharpest, most scary teeth was a lion. Worst thing that could happen to you when you're out traveling between cities is to have a lion fall on you. Not fall on you, I mean attack you. But anyway. So okay, they have sharp teeth, they have something yellowish or gold on the top of their head. Their faces were like the faces of men. We don't know if he is saying they actually look like men, that they have a nose and a mouth, and, or if he's saying that there is a characteristic of them that is man-like. I'm not going to speculate. We just know that whatever it is, John didn't say they're exactly men. He said it's like. They have a likeness like. They have this appearance like men but then they have something that most insects don't have. They have hair. And so John says, you know, the way women have hair. It's, it's the same thing. The, these bugs have hair. Okay, everything about that description of an insect is unlike anything we know. And thank God we don't. Thank God we've had no experience with these insects. These insects are kept in the bottomless pit they're going to be released at the time of judgment in order to judge the people on the planet who are still here. It's going to be awful. People are going to want to die. But because God is in charge of death, they're not going to be able to die. They're going to sting them. They're going to bite them. They have sharp teeth, verse 9. And they have breastplates like the breastplates of iron. Anybody going into battle knows that you put on an iron breastplate so that the arrows that are coming at you are going to be stopped by that breastplate. So not only are they wearing a very tough skin like armor, but underneath them there is breastplates like iron. In other words, they seem impervious. And the sound of their wings, this is exactly what Joel said, the sound of their wings is like the sound of rushing chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. That's just a really loud noise. Okay, I'm going to make a cicada reference again. When you walked outside when the cicadas were, how loud was it? So loud. Okay, well, that's what John is describing. The same way earlier that he said the voice of Jesus was like many rushing waters. Here he's saying that these creatures are going to be so many of them that when their wings are all flapping at the same time, that it's going to sound like chariots and horses rushing into battle because it's just this constant drone of noise constantly. And they have tails like scorpions and sting. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them who is the angel of the abyss. There's that bottomless pit language again. The angel of the abyss. Who wants that title? <laughs> He's the ruler of the abyss, and the ruler of the abyss is in charge of this demonic horde of 
killer insects, except they're not killer insects. They're stinging, biting insects that can't kill anybody. They have a king over them, who is the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. Those both mean the exact same thing, destroyer. Many commentators say that that is a direct reference to Satan himself, that he would be the king of the abyss, the fallen angel who rules the abyss. I heard a preacher years ago say that is an appropriate name, Abaddon, because he is a bad one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then after all that, okay, now I tried to describe that the way John described it. I tried to make it ugly and bad and creepy and painful. I tried to, I tried to give you some sense of what this is going to be like. And verse 12 says, and that was just the first woe. Remember, there are three of them. The first woe is past, and behold, two more woes are coming after these things. If that first woe is that bad, can you imagine what the next two are going to be like? I'm going to say it again. I say it every week. I'm going to say it again. First, that's what the Bible says. We're Bible people. We're people of the book. I remember saying years ago that whatever's in this book is what I believe, even if I don't understand it, it's still what I believe. Okay, here's something I have no real direct comprehension of that even John had to say, well, it's like, but the description of it is really, really bad. But do we believe it? Yes. Yeah, we have to. It's in the Bible. It is the very word of God. And so we believe it. We believe it's going to happen. It's going to happen here on planet Earth. These evil things coming up from the abyss and falling down from heaven. I'm going to say it again. You don't want to be here. Run to Christ. Christ is the only way to avoid all that. Christianity is not about get a better house, which you did. It's not about get a better car, which I'm about to. It's, <laughs> you know, to the people on the internet, they will have no idea what that joke was about. It's not about your life is going to improve here and now and your children are going to run faster and jump higher and you're going to be the most attractive people in your neighborhood. It's not about you're going to get more money and you're going to get that new job that you named and claimed. It's not about... Christianity is about deliverance. Christianity is about, think about this word, salvation. And it is God who is doing the saving through Jesus Christ, his son, and what he is saving you from is his wrath. And that's just a little piece of what his wrath looks like. Remember, this whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you're reading that kind of bad news and the end of it is not run to Christ, you've missed the point. The point is not just to excite your imagination so that you go, wow, that sounds terrible. Steven Spielberg could make a movie of that because that would be, I'd pay for that. 
No, what it is about is these are the realities of the judgment of God which has been waiting for a very long time and these demons have been put in a bottomless pit for a very long time and they're going to be released at the proper time of judgment because God is going to utilize them just like he utilizes the whole rest of his creation for his ultimate glory. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself and even this moment of judgment is going to be to his glory and to his honor as he shows the godless what his justice, what his righteousness and holiness actually looks like. So, we believe it. The Bible says it. Run to Christ. Amen. You don't want to be part of that. And that's why I took the time to try to make it sound bad. But it sounds pretty bad if you just sit down and read it. It sounds unimaginable because we can't imagine it and its reality and its coming. Run to Christ. This would be a good time to sing, take my life and let it be. this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, 
Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.